Welcome to Between the Bells, a conversation with your favorite history teachers, Mr. Drew Baker and Mr. Schuyler Van Valkenburg, where they apply their vast knowledge of history and completely random information to entertain themselves and you. Between the Bells is brought to you by... I mean, how is it not brought to us by Vladimir Putin? I'm pretty sure not only did he win our 2013 person of the year, but I think he's sponsoring everything right now. He's definitely responsible for this podcast creation. (laughs) He's funding it from overseas. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. I'm Drew Baker. And I'm Skylar Van Valkenburg. And here with us, as always, running our sound, media, and production is our chairman, Mr. Matt McKegg. Hey, everybody. Here Between Bells, we discuss topics in history, the social sciences, current events, and pop culture. You can subscribe to us through iTunes or download other episodes through our blog, blogs.henrico.k12.va.us slash Between Bells. Also follow us on Twitter, at Between Bells Pod, and check us out on Facebook. Just search for Between Bells. All right, on to... Spanish Inquisition is a section where we take audience questions, and this week we have Olympic-themed questions. So, Chairman, take it away. That's right. As you all know, the Winter Olympics are currently underway. Uh, So we're going to start with the opening of the Olympics. Uh, Guys, how historically accurate was Sochi's opening ceremonies? I have to claim ignorance in this extent that I did not watch the opening (laughs) ceremonies. However, it's always intriguing, as we were talking about a couple days ago, it's always intriguing to see how a history country perceives themselves. Yeah. Because it's not always objectively true. I am a huge fan of opening ceremonies. I think since Beijing, especially, the the Annie has just been upped. Um, they they just went put so much into this. And I think it's a way for a country to tell the world about itself. I was very, very surprised with the stories Russia told to tell and did not tell. I knew we weren't going to get history because right. you don't. No. And especially from Russia. Russian history, if we're going to portray it in an accurate way, is sad. It's not happy. Well, and, and history in some ways is the enemy of the national myth because yes. historians seek to puncture myths. But, you know, what What he decided, and I say he because this is – it was driven by Putin. And, I mean, people agree with it. I think what he decided to highlight was a lot of Peter the Great and by showing that we're really looking west. There was no – Russian Orthodox Church in this whole thing, which was really interesting yeah, to me. Yeah, because the Orthodox Church during communist era was outlawed because communism's official religion was no religion, atheism. And recently, Putin has been rehabilitating the church big time. I, I thought he was going to push it. There, I mean, there were a couple like movie scenes where they had a bishop and they, yeah. they showed um, you know, the building of the basilicas. And they did an alphabet thing, and one of the alphabets was their word for orthodoxy. Yeah. But I really I thought that would have more of a prominent place because I feel like that's the direction Russia is trying to move itself. Sure. Is to get back to who we used to be before communism, and but now as a modern nation. But what they did show, they did show communism. They did not mention the names Lenin, didn't mention Stalin at all, which was cool. Uh, but they still they, – and they showed communism as the industrial revolution for them. Sure. And I think that's how they're going to look at it. Yeah, oh, this yeah, is sure. when we industrialize and this is how we set it up. Obviously nothing of like – The purges. Purges. Yeah, no, yeah. Of course. But I mean, that's, that's, that's to not be expected. A, that's not going to be in an Olympics. But they did – they did they, – they made the conscious decision to go through Russian history. And a uh, lot of mentioning of the great Russian writers – kind of looked back to the glory of Russia during the Imperial Russia. Did a lot with their arts in St. Petersburg. Um, 
showing their contribution to Western stuff. They're totally looking West again. Russia is not looking East. Well, and this is very contemporary for politics, too, because this is Putin saying, look, we matter. We're a major player. You have to take us into account. We want to have good relations, but not at the expense of losing power. Yes. You know, you know it take like Ukraine right now, where Western Europe and America and Russia are battling kind of for the soul of the Ukraine, you know. And so, you know, he's looking West as a way to say, you better take us into account. Yes. I would say if, if there was a thesis from watching this, it, the message would be that Russia is old, it is powerful, and it's relevant. And, and you know, that's an interesting Russian debate period. The, are we Asian or are we European? Yes. Constant debate. In the late 1800s, this was a huge debate. The Slavophiles yeah. versus the Europhiles. Who, which, what are we? You know? And so... We can see right now, like Peter the Great, they're looking west. Uh, it, it, it appeared to it, it, it appeared like that to me for sure, and I loved watching it. Definitely recommend going to check it out if you haven't. They're all on YouTube. But to be clear, not real history. Not real history. Uh, speaking of the architect, who would you compare Putin to in our history or in world history? I see Putin as an absolutist. He wants total political power. He's willing to do what it takes to get that political power. He will allow people to have freedom as long as they don't engage in politics. That's a very absolutist thing to do, a very Metternich thing to do. Right. You know, early 1800s, Metternich said, look, we're going to give you enough leeway as long as you don't get into this political sphere. Elizabeth and we're going to crash down. Yeah. You know, and, and so he, I don't see him in the line of totalitarians, but he is certainly willing to suppress any institution or person that he thinks – could potentially impede on his political power. And this is – Russia follows people like this. They just – it's this huge country that for ease or tradition or mentality or worldview, they like following one strong person. Um, I, I see him as like a Justinian. I really – I mean the, because he's tireless. For good or for bad, the guy has his hand in everything and he, he's going to matter. Um, really took Russia out coming out of the KGB ranks and in the past decade has really made this country all about him – and he's get they follow and yeah. and they have traditionally and it's it's interesting to see his historical legacy is going to be a cool one to see play out. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. All right, question number three. Uh, speaking his, uh, historically on Olympics again, how or should do politics and the Olympics interact, and how have they done it in history? Well, politics has always played a role. You know, you can go back to the Olympics uh, under Nazi Germany or Jesse Owens. Uh, when, you know, showing the black power uh, salute. Uh, you can see it in 72, the terrorist attacks at Munich. You can see it in 80 and 84 when the United States or the Soviet Union were boycotting games uh, that were in the other's country. So politics have always played a role. Both internationally and domestically. And domestically. You know, because you have, um, yeah, I, I always think of, of course, Jesse Owens, um, and kind of the displeasure of the Germanic people with him, with all, everything they're trying to bring in, and how just he rocked the Olympics and showed the greatest athlete in the world. And then John Carlos and Tommy Smith in the '60s. Yeah, I conflated the two. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, you're yeah. good. Wait, showing the yeah. uh, the Black Power salute and really speaking not to the world as much, but more to America, and you see that. And we can see it this year with gay rights. Yeah, that's a big thing. My people, the Greeks came out yeah. with rainbow gloves on yeah. purpose. Yeah, uh, first be knowing they'd be the first country out um, wearing rainbow gloves. The West, I mean, not the West German, the German uniform. Yeah, rainbow, but they said didn't have anything to do with. Please, 
Because they said it was created in the 80s. I don't know if I buy that or not. I'm really – I mean, they said it was created – not in the 80s. I'm sorry, in October. If um, anything, come on, self-awareness alert. Definitely. And then, and then of course, you Canadians. know, I was having <laughs> – I got to say, the Billy Jean King can't make it. And President Obama says, I really want to make a statement and ask Brian Boitano to come out as the um, flag bearer for America. This was my favorite move. And it does kind of go back to South Park with what would Brian Boitano do. <laughs> but when I heard this announcement, I was so excited. And I grew up watching this guy skate. The guy's incredible. He's a phenom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was actually pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And to the extent of should it play a role, it's always going to because politics is in everything. Yes. Politics is always going to you know, be involved in something like this. To what extent is the question? And I think you know we're seeing good politics in this Olympics where teams are kind of protesting. But – I think where you stop is I don't think a boycott helps anybody, which we no. did in 84 or 80. No, no 84. We did in 80 in Moscow. Oh, yeah. Yes. They in Moscow in 84. And, and I think that's where you go too far when you boycott the games because uh, I'm not sure you're changing anything doing that. Yeah. And all you're doing is hurting the Olympians who have tried hard. You're taking I think away world, the countries. World sporting events, you know. are, they're just beautiful. Yeah. You know I mean? I think yeah. the Olympics – uh, the World you Cup. Do, you do more good by being there and showing your values yes. than by staying home and not showing. And them. I think it's okay to have as a platform. Yeah. You know, because as long, if it's done in peaceful protest, yeah. I know that's an American worldview, but I, I mean, I think that's cool. And um, I like seeing it as a mirror for history because everything's a mirror for history. So why not be self aware and know that sure. it's going to be? Yeah. All right. Oh, I like this next question. All right. Favorite American city, you guys? I'm, I'm making the stand, and I, I'm, I'm saying this without irony. I'm going to recognize New York is the greatest city I've ever been to. Um, lucky to go to cities in Europe. Never been to any in Asia. Been to many in the U.S., West Coast, East Coast, Chicago. Nothing compares to New York in terms of size and importance and being a city. And I, love, I think Chicago's fun. I might have more fun in Chicago than New York. Chicago's an amazing place. San Francisco, I feel like I'm in Europe. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. I really love, and I'm not joking, I love Richmond, Virginia. And I know, I just think it's a great city. And it's just, I really do, I like the moderateness of Richmond in terms of being in the middle. And I know, I mean, I, I would say, where do I like to go on vacation? I think Savannah's incredible. I just think yeah. it's gorgeous. I like places with character. And I just like how Richmond's a little bit southern, but we're also part of the megalopolis. I like how it's a big enough city to have stuff, but small enough to where I walk in and I know people. It's I'm putting down RVA. I love it. We're on the rise. We're trending. RVA all day. RVA we are trending. I'm, very, I'm putting it down. Very Greatest city in the world, Richmond. Very hip. Greatest city in the world. Uh, gosh, big fan of Chicago. Love Chicago. Big fan of New York. RVA is okay. Not number one. Yeah. Top ten. Yeah. Uh, Love Seattle. I was going to say, you got to go Seattle. Oh, <laughs> lived in Seattle. I love my Pacific Northwesterners. They irritate me to no end. Portlandia. But I'm a big fan. I love living there. It was a great place. Uh, never going to move back, probably. <laughs> yeah. Too far away. Got family. But, uh, gosh, love the Pacific Northwest. It does. It's very easy to make fun of. But the South is easy to make fun of, too. I'm going to make a Facebook banner that says, uh, historian decides Richmond, Virginia, greatest city in America. And look how many people from Richmond will share it on Facebook. Because if there's one thing well, we love do doing in Richmond, oh, oh, I'll get, I'll think, get 30 shares. I think, no, I, I think it's too low. I put the over under at 50 for 50? shares. 50? Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay. 
Uh, I'm going with the over, by the way. All right. All right, finishing up before we close out the show, favorite Olympic sport, go. Ice hockey, duh. To watch. Winter Olympic sport way, to watch. Way sweeter than the NHL. Yeah. yeah let's go Winter Olympics. Yeah. That's, that's what we go. I love watching downhill skiing. I mean, it's just, and I know uh, they're just incredible. But actually, no, my favorite, freestyle skiing. Um, the combination of moguls, and then it's like all of the motion, and then you go over a jump, and it's just like calm, and then they hit again, and they're just rolling down the hill. I think they're incredible. Um, big, big fan of watching curling, though, unironically. And as a historian, the Arctic Biathlon is really cool just because of everything that the Scandinavians do while cross-country skiing and shooting oh, guns. That's ridiculous. You know, if you yeah, put that as a mirror to World War II history. That's, so, oh, oh, yeah. The oh, Metternich yeah. line. I mean, oh, not the oh, Metternich line. Yeah. Matterhorn line. Yeah. So cool. Uh, cross-country skiing with guns is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And it, every year people like kind of make fun that it's a sport. But if no. you understand Scandinavian yeah. culture, yeah. I mean, the Finns kept Russia at bay for all of World War II. With cross-country with skis cross and guns. With cross-country skis and guns. And they're incredible. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, Which, I mean, by the way, is a check in the positive column for the Scandinavian people. Oh, they, they get too column. much love. I'm no, backlashing no, Scandinavians. They do not get enough love. That is amazing. They kept the Russians <laughs> out yes. with skis and guns. Yeah, that's true. That part is pretty my sweet. My people. It's my people. Yeah. Uh, they also, not all of them, but some of them kept the Nazis out too. So with that, Chairman, we need the motivational soundtrack for this week's feature. All right, Mr. Van Valkenburg, you want to kind of introduce how we're going to do this feature? I'm really excited about it today. Well, well first, we're back. Yeah, we're, we're back. back. That's true. It's been a, it's been a snow-filled January in the South. It's been awful. <laughs> we get, have getting ready for snow apocalypse again. I, I, I came down here to get away from this nonsense. <laughs> yeah, we're bat. We got to batten down the hatches. Everybody, um, you know, we can't go to U-Crops anymore. <laughs> uh, so, you know, go to Kroger. It, it's really been, it's like when the Roman Empire fell and we just have people with no direction. What grocery no store do we go to before the can't snow now? Can't go to Martin's. No, we can't go to Martin's. Got to be Kroger. Kroger took over. I guess Kroger is the new They're the grocery new store of Richmond. Yeah. And they've been making a play with all those luxury places. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we're going to have to go in. We're going to have to get ready for Snowpocalypse 2. We're recording early. We missed last week because we're all trying to get caught up. But, you know. We, hey. we, we shall overcome. Hey, so it goes. So this week we are going to do a book review, uh, a first in our pod. Uh, and we are going to talk about the novel Cloud Atlas, which is also a movie in which Tom Hanks stars. Some of you may have seen it. It came out roughly a year ago. It's on HBO, if anybody has HBO. Yep. Long movie. Read the book first. The book is way better. Yeah, I, 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 and I'd like to just go forth, and I'm glad they made a movie out of it. I think it's nice, but um, I'm okay if we don't even mention it. Yeah, it was a valiant effort, the movie. It's not bad. It's okay. Yeah, uh, and so this is the book uh, written in 2004, so fairly recent novel in the past 10 years by David Mitchell. And we both, uh, I guess you finished this book when? A couple months ago. And I just finished, about last week, used a lot of my snow day time to catch up on school stuff. And then um, got to finally read this book, which really I was really excited about. So David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. If you're interested in the book, just go ahead and download this podcast, save it for now, read it, or maybe fast forward ahead um, because we are, this is going to be spoiler, spoiler alerts. alerts. We're going to talk about what's going on. Or, I mean, you can listen to what we say. And, it, you know, if you're one of our students, I would say listen to this first, then, then go. Yeah, and then go read it. Because for the high school, even for our, and we've got some smart students for sure, 
But even for you guys, I would think this book's a challenge. It's yeah. not inaccessible, but I think you'd probably do well to listen to this first. Uh, and, and for anybody in general, there's a lot of themes that you, you don't necessarily tease out when you just read it by yourself in isolation. Right. Uh, and so, all right. Cloud Atlas is six stories all loosely tied. Well, loosely and not loosely tied together. Yeah. Uh, it's like Russian dolls. Uh, okay. And so your beginning and your end are one story from the early 1800s. And as you go towards the middle of the book, from the beginning or from the end, you move closer to the post-apocalyptic future. Right. So it's like, it's basically like there's six chapters. One chapter written in the 1800s, one in the early 1900s, one in about 1990, I think. 70. 19, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Louisa Ray, 1970. Then the next one in 1990. And then a story in the far future, and then the middle story is in the far-reaching future. And once you get to this part in the middle of the book, then you go back down. So then you go from that one to the one in the near future to the one in the 1990s to the one in the 1970s, 1920, and late 1800s. And you might say, wow, that's crazy. Never seen a book structured like this. No. it's And you might think, ah, that's kind of you know, kitschy. It's not quite my thing. But the stories are amazing. And when you go back down... The insight you have from having progressed to the future makes you read the second half of the novel in a completely different way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is just really cool. One, two, three, four, five, six, five, four, three, two, one. So the first story you read, you don't get until the last 50 pages of the book to find out the resolution of it. Really blew my, because I didn't know this right. about it. So I really went in blind. It's my favorite way to go into a good book. And, um, you know, this guy, the, uh, Mitchell won. Nebula Award, which is a science fiction award, which is interesting because I'm not sure it's science fiction. I think the, fu- the near future. Right. Uh, the Booker Prize, Arthur C. Clarke. So um, great book. Really liked it. And I guess let's just kind of freeform. I, I mean, I'm pumped I, to talk about I, it. There's no good way to start. Yeah. It's, I think um, a good way to start would be a way that I've heard another book review started. And who's your favorite character? Okay. So of the six characters... I really, man, it's tough, but I think I really liked um, Robert Frobisher, who's the second one from the letters. He, do you say how do you say it? Like Zeldheim, Zeldheim. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't, but he's from uh, a Brit who's right at the turn, uh, right after post World War One. So the kind of that lost generation of Brits. Yep. Well educated, and he comes from money. Comes from money. Is, is a scoundrel for sure, a brilliant musician, and he kind of retreats all the debt he has in England and goes as a young 25-year-old as an apprentice in Belgium for this fictional, amazing uh, composer, which is it Vivian? I guess you'd say Vivian Ayres. Yeah, Vivian Ayres. Yeah. Um, and he's just like this dissolute kind of pox on his family, and so he's got to flee Britain, and he's a composer. He fancies himself a composer, and so he goes to work for this famous composer. Right. And he works. He kind of works his way in. And I just love it. I mean, I think the historian in me geeked out. I think that that generation must have just been so angsty. There's just this. Europe is ruling the world when they're born, and then Europe basically commits suicide, and they live through it and have to pick up the pieces with World War One. And they're so educated. They're coming from this post Enlightenment. You know, we need to just have these great backgrounds and just his dialogue and his inner thoughts is so funny to me and interesting. Uh, I, I had to have Wikipedia up when he was speaking because he'd reference all these musicians I didn't know, but I learned a lot from him. And he's snarky and he's tragic, 
but he's kind of a jerk. Oh, he's the biggest sleazeball of all the stories. I just really liked him. Yeah. I mean, he uses people. Uh, but you're right. And, and I think tragic is all of these stories are tragic. You know, all these characters are tragic in their own way, though, which yeah. is what makes them kind of, they're all tragic in different ways. You know, and his tragedy is kind of a couplefold, really. But I think his ultimate tragedy is he's trying to make music and there's no audience for it anymore. Right. This classical. He's trying to make classical, roman- romantic based music, much in line with like the Beethovens right. of the world. Uh, and we're in 1920s. That's gone. Right. You know, uh, the war certainly killed off any of that kind of optimism of that music. And how much of, you know, and how much of everything he was raised with is gone. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, that's it, it. You really that's the cool part of the generation. Yeah. I think they really put a finger on it. Um, and like, you know, the Brits at that point who just they thought they knew everything. Yeah. And, you know, and for a long time, everybody else thought they knew everything, too. And the stories are told for Frobisher through letters he's writing right. to his friend. Uh, who he's completely taking advantage of and using right? Uh, about his experiences in Belgium and how he's trying to accomplish all these things. Uh, I, I like the Frobisher character, but i got to say, I think the best character in this story, I really love Cavendish. Cavendish is a British editor of books he was in your contemporary favorite. times, but he's not my favorite. I really loved him. I laughed a lot, a lot, I did a lot too. with him. My favorite character is Somni451. Yeah, that... Somni451 is from the future, the far future in this kind of uber-modern world where everything is based on genes and capitalism, Mm -hmm. and she's not even a real person. She's like a clone. She's a clone. Yeah. She's genetically spliced together, and she's created purely to be a worker for for what their, their world calls consumers. Right. And consumers are just people, and they just they consume. This is like an uber capitalistic, technologically. What do you think? So, I mean, you feel like obviously Papa Songs is basically like a McDonald's. It's like a McDonald's where yeah. she works. Yeah, and, and these people don't live a life. They're they're slaves in multiple senses of the word. Word, yeah. and their whole life they're created just to serve at this McDonald's. They right. live at this McDonald's. They go there. You know, when they're done working, they get put into a trance and go to sleep. They worship. They yeah. They worship their boss essentially. Yeah. And um, her story is the story of her finding her freedom and finding her uh, essence and her individuality. Yeah. And, but the story is just so well told. And she's a very tragic figure too because she finds out that when she gets her freedom, she ends up also losing her life. Right. uh, Because of the system she's in. Uh, But she is just an amazing story of her kind of, and she's telling it in an interrogation. She's being interrogated by the system, the people who the second the half world. of that was really cool um, because basically it was revealed that you know she kind of when she gained consciousness, you know what do you think when she gained consciousness and kind of started to know about the world around her and she caused all this uproar and she was supposed to be part of this rebellion movement that was going to take down the corporate structure and then found out that it was all a ruse created by the corporate structure. What did you think of that? Did you buy that? Well, this raises an interesting thing. Okay, so in each story, Mitchell gives you a reason to doubt the truth of the story. Right, right. Okay? And so in each story, it's a very subjective story, and he gives you hints that it might not be real. You can make a valid case that everything past Adam Ewing is made up. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. in each story, there's, there's doubt as to whether it actually exists. Yeah. And... Um, but with Somni 451, she gains her freedom. She's by this rebel group who basically takes her out from where she is, and they're going to use her 
as their way to help rebel against this corporate society. The world is run. They live in new Seoul because the old Seoul, Korea, is underwater from global warming right. and all these things. And so they, she, she gets freed, and these people are using her to help form a rebellion. Uh, and you know, she ends up getting caught, and she ends up being killed by this this capitalistic world order that runs everything and creates, you know, it's basically enslaved the entire population. Right. She comes to think at the end that it was all a ruse by this world order and that the rebels that she were a part of, they were allowing to exist so that people would blow off steam without forming a real revolution. Right. And that she was always going to die and she was always a pawn of the game. At least that's what she's told, yeah. And that's what she, she comes to believe. Right. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I do. E- I mean, I don't know. I I took all of them at face value when I read. And then when I looked back at them, I saw where some of them, you know, because they are like ones in a journal, which yeah. and published by his son later. That's the first story. The second one uh, are letters. So in letters, you just tell your own version of the truth. Then one's a pulp novel. The other is a movie script. It seems, you know, yeah. the Cavendish one. There's no – oh, man, but I love the story. I, I just took him at face level, and I like how Mitchell lets you do that. Because yeah. the whole book's playing with doubt and belief and in so many different ways. I liked that. So I, the easiest way for me to understand the novel and get out what I want to get out is just take them for what right. they are because otherwise I don't have a leg to stand on to interpret anything. Well, and the, the ultimate irony of that situation is that Somni 451 – becomes God right. in the post-apocalyptic world. Right. In the post-apocalyptic world, she is worshipped as God by these people on an island in Hawaii. But the, okay, so here, and this is, you know, I guess we can just go in and assume that people will listen, you know, who yeah. are listening have seen this or just interested. So when Zachary at the end... Zachary is the, the teller of the story in the post-apocalyptic world. So the middle clear. story. The middle that's, story. The that's, most futuristic. But at his point, they're tribal again. And, right. In the post, it's in the post-apocalyptic future. Some people are tribal, like Zachariah's people, and then some people are still futuristic, right? Like the uh, the woman he meets, the president, the president, the presidents. Yeah. yeah. And so he, so he sees the um, old Georgie, old, old Georgie, Georgie, old Georgie, you know, who's like the de- he, like he sees him. He sees the devil. Yeah. And, you know, I don't. The devil who's going to, like, you know, in their island tribal thing, you know, he eats your soul with a wooden spoon. And, I mean, time stops, and he has a conversation twice with the devil. Yeah. But he's also telling this story to kids later on around a campfire. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, does he see him? Does he not see him? Well, it's kind of interesting what the devil is. Does Is it the devil, or is it kind of... I took it as he was almost a version of their tribal societies, like uh, maybe this is too Freudian. Yeah, it's almost like the tribal societies was is it the, the super ego, like yeah, kind of crunching down on you, and you, this is what you're supposed to do. Oh yeah, type yeah. thing. Uh huh. Because the devil tends to come out when he starts doubting his natural inclinations, right? And so the devil comes out when he's working with this woman for the prescient. The right. devil comes out when he's hiding as his yeah. friends and family are killed. Yeah. And so I kind of took it that way almost. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Uh, as like something that the society had ingrained in them. You better be careful. Otherwise, old Georgie's going to get you. Yeah, yeah. And then but the crazy thing, too, that really gave me trouble and it was never resolved. And I guess there's a reason is, you know, when he goes and he gets three prophecies from Somni, who's, you know, at right. this point a god. And he obeys two of them, but not the third. Right. And uh, a couple of the book reviews... Uh, that I've read say that this shows that we're doomed to fail. Right. I don't buy that. Yeah. 
I don't. But know. I didn't know what to do with it. I don't know, and that raises the broader question of the book, right? Uh, this book is based on Nietzschean ideas, which yeah. you'd have to have no fluency with to understand the book. Right. It's implied. It's this idea of eternal recurrence that life keeps happening over and over and over again, uh, and people make the same problem, make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So we have six stories that progress chronologically, but people tend to make the same exact mistakes. Right. Each story is about slavery and freedom. Power. Uh, who has power? Who, who has power? Who has doesn't? What can the people who don't have power do to better their situation, or is it futile? Uh, religion. Each one is about religion yep. in some way. And that's like, and Goose really hits that power. Doctor Goose from the first story that's subsequently the very last story in the book. Um, you know, those who have power, right? You know, eat the people who, who don't, don't have power. But in each case, if you notice, the um, the conflict amps up a step. Yeah. So, like in the first story. It's a story about an individual slave. Right. And that individual slave's freedom. And this guy's, Dr. Ewing's, recognition of him and his white, white European right. and American friends are enslaving these people incorrectly. Right. And so it's about this one relationship. And maybe if you want to take it about this tribe's slavery. Right. Well, the second story takes up an even another notch because it's about World War One. Right, right. And then... The next story takes up a notch because it's about nuclear war, like nuclear right. uh, corruption, capitalist corruption, and nuclear fallout. Yep. And then the next story, um, Cavendish. Cavendish with, is kind of maybe the exception to yeah. this. It's kind of like a comic interlude almost, where he just, he takes it back down a notch. It's yeah. kind of really weird. It doesn't fit. But then after that, you go to the future, and in the future, I mean, oh, it was, the entire society is based on slavery. He and could have taken. An Horizon of Somni 451 and made an entire book out of that. Yeah. And it would have been a really good piece of science fiction. You could make an entire movie just out of that story. Easily. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I thought the major themes, I, I'll tell you what I got out of it from reading this book, and I really encourage it. It's one of the best modern novels I've read in a really long time. I came out with a lot of hope, but I'm a more optimistic person too. And I really thought that, you know, society, every generation has its conflict of the haves and have nots, but the individual can make a decision. Right. You know, you can be Timothy Cavendish and be 65 years old, put in an old folks home and still fight and get free. Well, and this is the interesting story, right? Because each story gives you some foundation for hope. These people are struggling and the struggle might be absurd. Right. I mean, you shouldn't necessarily feel bad for Frobisher or Cavendish. But they are still they're perceiving that they are fighting for something valuable, and you come to like, and they all, agree with them, and then in a way they are. In, in my mind, they all. But I, I've read other reviewers, and they don't agree. But in my mind, they all come out with what they started off to get. Right. Ewing's gonna fight to help abolitionists. Frobisher, in a way, he gets his great piece of music. He gets his great piece of music, and he kills himself. Yeah, you know, and that's which is very romantic. That very kind romantic. Of romantic ideology. Yeah, he becomes who he wants to become, yeah. and then Louisa Ray, she cracks the case. Yeah, Cavendish gets free. Somni four fifty one starts the revolution. It does, but it raises the interesting question. This book is about individual agency, what the individual can do. Yeah, but it's also about the structure. This book is very anti capitalism. Very. It perceives capitalism. As what enslaves people, it's implicit that that slavery is based on capitalism in the first story. It's not implicit at all. It's explicit that capitalism is what's at fault for the, this potential nuclear problem in Louis Array. Right. Capitalism is what's enslaving people in Somni Four Five One, and he seems to suggest that 
these people fight and get individual wins, but within the broader structure, yeah. they all lose. Doomed to fail. And there's an implicit doom to fail by the fact that there's a post-apocalypse. Right. So even though each person individually got something, society lost because they're in the post-apocalypse. And I struggle with that because you're right. Yeah. There is this real sense of like people can make change, but then in the end the system still creates destruction. Events are in motion. And so like, yeah. you're really led with, at the end, the end of the book is almost the high note of the book because it's about Adam Ewing deciding to be an abolitionist. Yep. And we know, because we're in 2013, that abolitionism is going to win. Right. So we know that when his father-in-law tells him he's doomed to failure, mm-hmm. we know he's wrong. We know he's going to win. And so that's so optimistic. It is. But we were in the post-apocalypse 150 pages earlier. Right. You're exactly <laughs> right. It was, it was tough. My favorite moment of the book, kind of going to something different, the end of the Cavendish chapter where they, like, these four geriatrics – pull off this crazy escape to get out from like an oppressive senior citizen home and they go into the Scottish bar and this one guy who they all thought like couldn't speak at all, you know, the, the orderlies and all these people that were trying to stop their escape come into this bar and he gives, which was just such a funny nod. He he does the no true Scotsman logical fallacy (laughs) by literally saying, is there no true Scotsman in this bar? And all these Scottish bikers help out these four old people to escape and like, I was cracking the, up. The Cavendish story, I have never laughed out loud more in a story yeah, in my life. And that's like, if anyone's ever read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this is David Mitchell's British version of yes, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's 100%. Nest. 100%. So you've just got all that dry British humor mixed up in this story about trying to get freedom from an oppressive like system. But they're old. But they're like really <laughs> they're, old. They're 65, 70. And they're salty old people. They're so funny. But let's... This, each, this is another thing that's great about the novel. I think we should go through it. Each one of these stories is based on the fiction that was made at the time. Yes. So like the early 1800s Dr. Ewing story is told as epistolary fiction, letter writing. Yep. Based on diaries and letter writing. And it's a, a story about at, being at sea, which is very popular back then. Definitely his nod to Melville. Yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah. It, yeah. The 19... is nod to Melville, exactly. The 1900s Frobisher one is a nod to romanticism. Yes. The letter writing. Yep. Um, the 1970s Pulp Fiction, Louisa Ray. And it was that murder mystery, which is and, funny because yeah. neither of us have talked about it. That's probably your least favorite one. Yeah, it, uh, least successful. I, I agree, too. I uh, agree, too. But it was still well done. Totally. I, mean, I didn't dislike it. High standards. Yeah. The uh, contemporary Cavendish one is a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It became a movie up. script. So, you know, kind of yeah. talking into yeah, there. Exactly. The, the futuristic one. You know, is very it's based on this kind of government versus person interrogation style, and, which was yeah. just an interesting reimagining of the future. I think very much. You know, he doesn't he doesn't tell you about the language. You have to learn all these new words as you yeah. go through. That was and, cool. And then the post apocalyptic one is very much in line with post apocalyptic fiction. Tribal. Yeah. He's back at a fire pit. You know, yeah. t- t- telling kids a story as an old man. Yeah, and it's got this new language that you have to like, slowly understand as yeah. you, you read the story. It wasn't quite like Clockwork Orange, but that big section in the middle because they're in this world and they use all these new words. That took me a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you, and once you, any, anything like that, you mean, Huck Finn's the same way. Once you get into the, a book like that. You know, you start to understand the language, and after about fifty pages, your oh, brain's making connections. The Sony four five one language was amazing because yeah. it was the consumerist language of everything was named after what it is. Oh yeah, they jumped in their Ford. Yeah. They don't call cars cars. Yeah, they say Ford or your Nikes instead of shoes. Yeah, that was cool. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty amazing. But uh, each story was true to its time. 
which was really kind of fascinating and made it more believable and more fun to read, I thought. I agree. And so, yeah, I really came across, uh, I want to read more of his stuff. I, I picked up one of the books um, to kind of keep reading. But Oh, well, we missed the biggest thing, too, is that in this idea of internal recurrence, each story is connected to the oh. other stories. Oh, yeah. And I guess the big question, you're right. The big question is, did you think they, they, he makes a lot of illusions and then also critiques those illusions to if this is one soul that has reincarnated in every age? Yeah. Did you think it was? No. But I think it's interesting, though. So I'll give you an example. Dr. Ewing, his diary was published by his child, and that's what you're reading. Right. And so you read the first half in the first chapter, and it cuts off. Oh, that blew my mind. It cuts off there because that's the part you read with Frobisher, who is then the second story. And about halfway through the first beginning of Frobisher, he mentions in a letter to his friend, that he's reading Dr. Ewing's yep. diaries and it cuts off halfway through because the book was torn in half yep. and he needs the second half. Yeah. And, and, and then Louisa Ray, like she that. gets the letters. And Louisa Ray gets the letters and she listens to Cloud Atlas, which is the symphony yeah. made by Frobisher. Yep. And I mean, the levels of connection. Oh, it's a tapestry for sure. Um, but no, I don't think it is. The, I, I think they were. I think the novel leaves it in doubt. Yeah. I think the movie suggests that they are. Sure, totally. They are tied together. I don't. I think he's making the point that we keep being reborn as a society but making the same mistakes. So it's not that the soul is reoccurring. It's that the situation people are in is reoccurring. I think that's what he meant by it. Uh, I didn't take it kind of the more Eastern mystical route. But he, I mean, oh, yeah. the beauty of this novel is everything's left open. Religion, yes. religion. Very postmodern in that optimistic, way. Optimistic, po- yeah. pessimistic. Whether or not any of these stories are based on reality or if it's just all f- yep. th- the inner fiction of some person that you don't even know about. It's the, it's the book. I've never read a book that I wanted to talk about with other people more. Except for maybe the Game of Thrones series. <laughs> but that was before the TV show came out. And ruined uh, everything. And ruined everything. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I I can definitely say that it's and I like how it's left up to interpretation. Because, and I like art that's like that because too. Because once again, he's critiquing religion. Yep. But, but he's, he's not anti-religious. It, he's leaving it wide open because religion is ultimately what helps Dr. Ewing see through slavery yeah. and make him an abolitionist. You know. Yes. Uh, and so religion, he's he's critiquing religion, but he's Frobisher's religion also, is music. He's also suggesting yeah. that you need that spirituality in your life. Yes. So it's pretty, you know, Psalm 451, that's a world completely devoid of religion. Right. And her religion becomes like these uh, kind of communist uh, uh, people who were against communism. Like Shiri Solonitsyn. Right. The famous communist And dissident. before that, her stuff is worshiping, you know, corporocracy. Corporocracy, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was just a, a sweet. It was like a whole big puzzle. I loved, and the pieces didn't, it was a puzzle, but it's like one of those puzzles you put together and it doesn't necessarily have a border. Right. You know, there's still a lot of other pieces you can put in. And the stories are all amazing. Yeah, they are. It's not hard to read. Really encourage you guys, go ahead and give it a shot, read it, see what you think. Um, Hit us on Facebook or respond to us, shoot us an email. If you're interested uh, to talk about it more, we sure are. I could easily talk about it for another hour and a half. Yeah, we just run out of time. Yeah, and um, but so hope that uh, everybody gets a chance to check out David Mitchell. I I think him and Cormac McCarthy are probably my two favorite people writing today. 
Yeah, the book is amazing. In yeah. terms of skill, I mean, I still I've got nothing but love for George R. R. Martin. Please finish uh, the book. Michael if you're listening. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing author. But I, the I, I, I'm a big fan of David Mitchell. He blew me away, and uh, he didn't talk down to me as no. a reader, and I really appreciate no. that. No, uh, and I like that he left everything open. He didn't tie together loose ends. So thanks, David Mitchell. We know you're listening. We really like friend your book. of the podcast, yeah. David Mitchell. Agreed. I'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, the bell is about to ring. Um, we are probably going to have a couple of days off for this snowstorm. We're going to see how much comes in. Everybody stay safe. Please follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, and check us out, blogs.henrico.k12.va.us slash Between Bells. Adios. See you. Summer. She fell in love with the drummer